Welcome to Too Busy to Flush. I'm JR. And I'm Molly. And if this is your first time joining us, thanks for being here. I think this is episode 107. Is it really um, that far? We are, yeah, it is. Cool. We are a happily married family of, uh, I take that back, we're episode 106. Um, we're a happily married uh, couple of... Um, Tomorrow will be 14 years. Right. That's so if you are to listening to this the day it's released, Wednesday, August 31st. Am I releasing are, it tomorrow? Do you release it, release it tonight? I, use, I try to if I have time. But who is going to listen to it when it's released late at night on Tuesday night? Our Uber fans. Okay. Anyway, Wednesday, August 31st, <laughs> we'll have been married for 14 years and happily married for most of that. Oh, and we have... Four kids. Sorry about the yawn. I've been working early mornings digging a trench. But we have four kids, ages 11 through 4. And we live in Montana. And we homeschool and Molly Gardens. And I just, like I said, I just finished digging trenches. So that's fun. Um, so, yeah. the um, uh, If you haven't joined us before... You will typically note that we don't necessarily, we don't talk, we talk a lot and we've had a lot of time to talk because we've been on vacation with the family, but we don't really plan out our shows. Molly usually has something roll around in her head. Except so conversation show tonight. The conversations are usually super fresh and unrehearsed. Well, everything's unrehearsed, super fresh and unrehearsed between us. So you get to little get a little glimpse inside of our, uh, Marriage, our lives, our family. You are, in a digital way, joining us at our table as we just have real-life conversations. There you go. I so like welcome it. to our digital metaverse <laughs> home. <laughs> um, yeah, so I want to talk about... I, I did kind of jot some notes down. Your mom's birthday was yesterday. And so we all went out to dinner and I jotted down some notes about some things that have been bouncing around between Molly and I a little teeny tiny bit, but a lot inside of my head. And then Molly's got some stuff that she's been bouncing around in her head. And so we're saving some stuff for the show. The first thing I want to, uh, there's a, oh, so, um, Molly forwarded me while we were on vacation camping a youtube video from a guy named adam grant adam grant wrote a book where he divided um, he is an organizational psychologist yes and he wrote a book where he divided people into three categories givers takers and matchers and then he divided he subdivided those into uh agreeable and disagreeable and it was a tedx talk that he did so i, I thought it was kind of fascinating and it was also three million views on the tedx it was also talk. really depressing that and if we if we mention stuff like this we'll include the links in the show notes but it was depressing for me particularly um that to know that i'm a disagreeable giver so he so you guys <laughs> to clarify what jr is saying a little bit he, I was, maybe you did clarify this, but I was looking his Instagram up. He has 1.6 million followers on Instagram. So he's not a nobody who, that we're, we just dug up. He's somebody that a lot of people have been following and we right, just discovered him. for a long him. time, yeah. He, 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 he describes what it looks like to be a giver and a taker. For example, in 
in a corporation. And he says, takers often, their metrics, say they're a salesman, their metrics are the best because they're, they're out there just doing what it takes for them to get to the top. Givers tend to have really poor sales metrics in the short term, but in the long term, givers are best for the organization, but it's very hard to find a way to structure the organization for a giver to succeed, especially if you're just going by straight sales metrics. They're not. They're, for example, a giver will be so into their customer's best interests that he or she will not sell the customer something if they don't think it's what the customer needs. Right. They, Where a taker is like, if I can get them to buy it, I'm going to get them to buy it. The trick is that he layers that into a two-by-two two matrix where there are, there's a agreeable, or there's givers and takers on the top, and then on the bottom are agreeable and disagreeable. And he said the problem in organizations is you tend to equate being agreeable with being a giver and being disagreeable with being a taker. And so you categorize people with where sometimes you have a who was the agreeable taker that he had. And he had pictures of the agreeable taker was um, uh, uh, what's his name from Family Guy, the little brat kid, the baby. I've never guy. watched Family Guy, remember. so it didn't resonate with me at it all. It just—it's like totally flaking but, on me now. And then the agreeable giver was Ned Flanders, so Ned just somebody Flanders, yep. cheerful from The Simpsons, uh, somebody that everyone likes, somebody that people benefit from having a relationship with. The disagreeable giver—he had the guy from House, the doctor, which oh, I Dr. also House. haven't watched, but I—I I knew who he was and I know his persona enough that he's. He's the sort of person who's who's deeply has other people's interests at heart, but you don't necessarily get that vibe from them when you first interact with them. He can be them. cranky, cantankerous, kind of blunt. And what Adam was saying is that you have to fight. You have to work to identify. Well, what you need to do is get rid of all the all the takers in your organization. Both the disagreeable and the, and the agreeable. The disagreeable taker was who one one disagreeable one taker. Equates to like ten givers, like that just cancels out. Yeah, cancels like 10 out like givers ten givers in an organization. So, and he's surveyed somewhere thirty thousand. Yes, so he's not just using small samples. He's in the tens of thousands of people that he's in organizations that he's done these he said surveys. Over thirty thousand people. So then the disagreeable taker was whom? On the uh, two Emperor two. Palpatine. Right. So the. Um, so the point was, you know, you need to find a place for those uh, disagreeable givers because they're the most marginalized, but probably but can be the most valuable people to your organization because they will provide insight and tell you things that nobody else will tell you. They'll give you the feedback. The you feedback need. you need yeah. to hear. And you know, I'm I'm kind of balancing this a little bit. I'm I'm listening, going through Ed Catmull's Creativity Inc. And Ed Catmull has, was the founder and president of Pixar and worked directly for Steve Jobs um, and then moved on to, he just retired like three years ago from Disney and Pixar Animation. But he's talking about running a creative organization and it's just so incredibly powerful. And he talks about, he talks about the need for building a team that will criticize uh, not, uh, the projects and not people. So people who've got, who don't necessarily have thick skin, but... I've got so many notes, but uh, basically finding 
finding people who are who are candid who will take the you know that candidness and creating this culture it's a phenomenal phenomenal book um it's probably in it's easily creativity inc and i read it once several years ago is easily in my top five uh like great books of all time and it's a non non-fiction book on how to how to fight the unseen forces in your organization specifically applied to a creative enterprise but also not so anyway back to adam grant so we were driving down the car driving down the road in the car and i was wanting to listen to see if he had any more interesting things about this give or taker thing because i'm like wow i'm totally disagreeable taker and it always give disagreeable give her and it always bites me in the butt like People hate me most of the time. And like, I literally, I genuinely have other people's best interests at heart. It's the best interests of the project group. Whatever. And you were also reflecting on some ski patrollers that you work yes. with. Yes. Oh, and I was who... like, man, it puts it into a whole different light. Cause there's some ski patrollers who I'm like, I just feel like they need to retire because they're cranky all the time. They're not fun to be around, but they're the first people to raise potential issues and problems, not because about safety issues, about safety issues, procedures. things that are in the best interest of the customers. And so it's kind of framed like for me, I was like, Whoa, this like totally shifts my thinking on these people that they're probably these crusty old guys are still have a lot to give and are still yeah. really valuable. I would, I would still... classify a couple of them as disagreeable givers yeah. all day long, you know? So anyway, um, but what I found, I was looking through some podcasts and what I found on his podcast, and I can't remember the name, Work Life, I think is the name of his podcast. It's a TEDx podcast, or a TED. No, I'm talking about his actual podcast. Actually, Adam Grant, so I went through and looked for Adam Grant's podcast. Because I, I did think a search for it and I couldn't find it. I think it. it's called Work Life. And JJ, I had to go to his website. Anyway, oh. in a very recent episode, he just wrote a book called Rethink. Or rethinking, and J.J. Abrams interviewed Adam on Adam's podcast about Adam's book. So it's <laughs> it's kind of amusing. Um, but anyway, I listened to the whole thing, and what struck me the most at the very end of it, and Adam said he didn't. It, this this information didn't make it into the book, but the whole book is around how to change. But he's he's planning to pursue it. Um, the whole book is about how do you you know. Good rethinking versus bad rethinking of ideas, organizations, thought processes, idea, you know, all those things. And he said they did a study um, on uh, pro gun versus anti gun. And this was at the end of the podcast. And uh, he said that what he discovered that he that people assume will change people's minds actually does not change their minds. But what did change your mind was something he never even, like, it just never occurred to him. And I think uh, th- this it resonated with me because it's kind of a theme that's throughout, like, this last year of podcasting mine I've been doing, or life, maybe. So anyway, the, he compared the Red Sox fans to New York Yankees fans and their bitter, bitter rivals and bitter enemies. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a hostility there between them. And so he asked the question, what would, what would it take for you to empathize or treat, you know, or, or you know, take, you know, promote, be a Yankees fan if you're a Red Sox fan or vice versa, be a Red Sox fan if you're a Yankees fan. You know, people are like, well, yeah, sure, sure, I'll, I'll help them, but I, they're they're still going to hell because they're rooting for an evil team, you know? And so he said, really actually believe that there's sports fandom. So rabid about sports fandoms that they actually think that people that blows my mind. Yes. If you've ever lived in Denver for any length of time, 
<laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I know that. Nuts. What are the two teams in Chicago that are bitter enemies? The uh, White Sox, White Sox and, the and the Cubs. Cubs, like so. Yankees, whatever. Red Sox. I, I don't even follow it enough to. I just can't imagine that. Is this a function of identity politics into sports that that being a fan of a sport is such a deep issue of identity that you would dehumanize or villainize somebody who is a fan of another team? I just it is that is so beyond my realm of comprehension. Adam's trying to figure out what would it take for somebody to switch sides or at least like show some semblance of compassion without, you know, deliberately trying to belittle the other person. He said the two things that you would think would change somebody's mind. The first one is, is seeing them as human. You know, do you see this person? There's a human behind this person. Yeah, well, I'll help them, but I don't really care about that. Um, the second thing, man, I totally blanked right now. I'm actually, I'm, I don't have notes on any of this. I'm going from the top of my head. I forget what the second thing was. Which is sad. You'll have to listen to the podcast, I guess. But the second <laughs> one thing was one. I mean, the those the two the first two things are something we all do every single day, thinking it's going to change somebody's mind, and it doesn't. And he said what he discovered. Oh, uh, having something in common. Oh. They're both baseball. You're both baseball fans. Nope, that doesn't work either. So seeing them as human or having something in common. Uh, won't change somebody, won't get somebody to empathize with somebody. It just won't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, not going to happen. But what he discovered that he wants to pursue that he was not expecting at all was um, the concept of uh, being in somebody else's shoes. Being in somebody else's shoes. So imagine you are, you know, you grew up. In a hunting family, and he was using guns as a. He's like, imagine growing We're up. We're switching a hunting from family. sports to guns. Yeah. So the context of the whole thing, like I said, was he was he was looking at uh, anti-gun versus gun, um, and so he said, imagine growing up in a hunting family, and all of a sudden everybody's like, yeah, you could yeah, see I could how see you... how I could say I could be you could you could want guns around, and he was blown away. He's like, are you serious? And they're like, yeah. And then he asked the other people, like, like, what if you grew up in a city where all you saw was gun crime and you never hunted anymore? And they're like, oh, well, yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said, so putting yourself in the other person's shoes or imagining if you were that other person has the power to affect change in somebody else, changing in somebody's mind. Of someone else. And... I forget what we talked about in the car briefly on this. Well, I had two thoughts when you were describing that to me. The first was American culture writ large, where nowadays we have so dehumanized people who are on the other side of the ideological spectrum from us that those two things you described, the trying to humanize them doesn't work and the what would we have in common well we're all americans let's all respect the flag together or let's all we at least we can all x together at least we can all agree on this common bond in american life that is a total non-starter there is nothing in american life that we so much have in common that we can celebrate that together and put aside our differences what historically Americans had in common was this scratched from the ground immigrant grateful to be here escaping 
a rougher life, often persecution elsewhere. And so the Friesen family fled, well, first to Canada, from from Friesland in between Russia and Germany and was Mennonite and was basically... Was basically seeking, you know, got pushed into the woods between Russia and Germany and was in the Ukraine for some time. And then the Friesen clan ended up in Canada at first in America to to escape persecution. Um, I don't really know much about Mm -hmm. my my heritage, but that is such a common story for our ancestors that when they were one or two generations removed from that, they could remember their grandfather talking about this or your parents, your dad can still remember stories of his grandmother not having enough food to feed the kids and going around and digging in a frozen garden for a couple of potatoes and not eating so that her, what, nine kids, seven Mm -hmm. kids could all have a, like part of a potato for dinner. And then you think about the long winter, the Laura Ingalls Wilder series, it's the same story. The, the parents were not eating because they were running out of food and they had, so they're doing, depriving themselves for the sake of their kids in this very, very hard life. And I think that was such a common experience in American culture or even post World War One and World War Two the common experience that we could all share was that of was losing someone in a war, you know, in a world war. And so this commonality enabled putting aside big ideological differences. You know, if you look at historically the, the rhetoric and the fights that different sides had, it was extreme. <laughs> um, and so, so that was my one thought is American culture has gotten so far past the having, something being able to put ourselves in the other, in the other person's shoes because we don't have that sort of imagination or recent memory to which we can apply that mm, imagination. Yeah. Uh, the other thought that I had was if you look at scripture, what what American culture does not have, global Christianity does have because we all actually do share the same heritage and roots. The Old Testament is, when Matthew lists a genealogy, that is our genealogy as well, because we are in Christ. We we actually do have a shared past and uh, heritage, and so when we use our the imagination of our faith, and by imagination I don't mean something that's not true, like our girls are playing that they're unicorns upstairs right now. The imagination of robustly living out our identity, not only our identity in Christ presently, but our identity as the people of God. And that means that all the stories that we read about Israelites in the Old Testament, those are our forebears. Those are our people. And we have that in common. And so we can and should use that robust imagination to live out our common faith with people that are different from us. And I I think the other uh, kind of moving into my next idea, you know, it's you've got to get you've got to understand people. Like if you don't understand an idea or how somebody can think a certain way, you know, we need to be uh, be open to and, and engage with those people. I mean, there's a whole level of 
life and history and under and in experience of the world that's categorically different from ours. That's going to inform all of their stuff. You know, I was having a, a conversation with an acquaintance last week, and we were talking about some of the issues around, you know, some of the racial issues. And he lives down in Alabama. <laughs> I live in Montana. Our experiences are completely different, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like my issues with, you know, with race and race identity stuff is, you know, far more oriented towards uh, Mexican immigrants or the Native American population than it is blacks or African-Americans. Like, you know, it's just a totally categorically because different. we have so few. Yeah. People. <clears throat> and, it's you know, there's certain things that we experience here that they don't experience and, you know, all the things vice versa. But. So moving into my second thing. Wait, wait, I, let me just add one okay. more thing. Yeah. I think that that's part of the reason why uh, um, reading diverse literature and historical literature, particularly children's literature, is so important. So we have we I would like to be better at this. And there's I've, I've mentioned this gal that I found I le- heard from at the Wild and Free Conference before. Mm-hmm. Amber Johnston is her name. Uh, she, I follow her now f- in a lot of ways for book recommendations because she lives in the Atlanta area. She's a homeschooling, godly, Christian, black mom who is unapologetically black and and sets forth issues that are challenging to me as a white woman in Montana who's never even thought of these things. And Amber has a way, I know I've kind of talked about her before, but Amber has a way of challenging my way of thinking without writing me off. So it doesn't make me feel threat. I mean, it. I do have this recoil, like, what, she's saying there's something wrong with me in the way I view the world? <laughs> and then the humble part of me comes out and says... This is her lived experience, and her lived experience is true, and it needs to humble me and put me in a posture to learn rather than to be defensive and bolster my position. Right. And she, so when she recommends a book that, here's a great book about, like there was one I bought for the kids not too long ago. It's a graphic novel about like Jack and the Tornado or something. It's a, bu- a bunch of neighborhood kids, but it's a diverse group of neighborhood kids. And so there's black kids and white kids playing together. Mm-hmm. And she said even that representation is important for both white kids and black kids and other colored kids, of yeah. course, to, to be reading. But but if there's so many great children's books about you know this black kid sitting on the porch with his black grandma in a storm we had one of those for five in a row it's upstairs on a bookshelf and i can't remember the title of it but you know or this kid this kid in new york city who is jewish and there's this widow grandma who lives next door to him who's all by himself herself and he develops a relationship with her so reading things like this develops a robust imagination in kids for the purpose of empathy and understanding the world that's not just the world that I experience, but that's the world as it is it is all over the world and as all sorts of people have experienced it. Yeah, I'm curious uh, to see how this flows. I have no idea what your rant is going to be about. You mentioned to two people, <laughs> one on Telegram, that you've, you've been prepping a rant. But before we get there, um, the other, um, and this is sort of a tie-in to, I think, uh, not last week's, but the, the prior episode 105, to some of the discussion we had around 
around that particular episode and some other stuff we've been we've been reading and, and deliberating on um, when it comes to food and replacement for good things. And one of those is um, I, I had the opportunity to listen to um, on the recommendation of um, a friend, uh, that same acquaintance. Well, he didn't really recommend it, but it, long story. Anyway, um, I went. Uh, there's a the Gospel Coalition has a podcast called Recorded, and one of their episodes looked intriguing called Scrolling Alone. And um, I was I listened to it and was just kind of like, whoa, I'm going to put down every social media I've ever had, period. And he sent it to me, and I listened to <laughs> I made it through about half of it before my half phone died. Yeah, and she's got, I mean, you really need to listen to the rest of it. But um, it's just, it was so... Um, I mean, one, it's timely and relevant. So to, what's the premise of the podcast? Sorry, the premise of the podcast um, or this pod, this podcast episode, um, Sarah Zilstra interviews a variety. She's I think she was working on a book called um, I think she's working on a book called Scrolling Alone. I don't remember. But the premise of the podcast is she's done some interviews with some high school girls on the impact that Instagram has had on their lives, specifically Instagram. Specifically Instagram. Not really necessarily other. I mean, social media in general, but she kind of focuses on Instagram. And and as I've been reflecting on the podcast and a few other things, I think I mentioned this on our Telegram group, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that... Instagram specifically is a far... I mean, we all know TikTok is evil. <laughs> they're, they're Chinese intelligence. That's been proven. Um, and Facebook and all its, all its random things. But Instagram... or t- Sorry, Twitter and all... And it's horribleness for society. Uh, there's an article I read this morning, you guys. I think I posted on the Telegram group by Real Clear Religion. And the, uh, and that's a Catholic publication, but it came through a, a news summary feed I had today. And it talked about how... Um, how bad Twitter is. And I'm like, kind of just laughing to myself. I'm like, I've been saying this for years. It brings out the worst in everybody. Um, But anyway, so she's talking about specifically, uh, I was, was, I'll finish a thought. Instagram is, I think, I feel like Instagram is a, is a far more subversive threat than we, we realize um, in terms of some of these social media platforms. It seems innocuous on the surface, but um, as this podcast scrolling alone pointed out, there's so much more like deeper and kind of sinister going on there. That's like, Oh, Whoa. I, mm. uh, specifically when it relates to women and I'm a guy, I still have the same, you know, some of the same struggles when it comes to wanting likes and all this other stuff, but there's a whole realm of gender and specific it's, things. It, it's, it's, <laughs> it's both gender specific and generation specific. Yes. So one of the things that I don't know if I got to this point in the podcast, if she discusses this, but I've heard this before, that, that there's a very distinct difference in between how digital natives experience social media like Instagram and how people in our generation and older experience it, which is that digital natives, the online is every bit as real life for them as the not online where you and I, even if I have an addiction to Instagram, I my the formative time when my brain in my brain, the internet did not exist. And so I my brain was trained to this is real. This is what you can touch, what you can see, what you're with physically present with is is what's real. And for a digital native, their brain, has not created those distinctions. And I think it's only going to get worse 
with the metaverse and with VR where everything feels so much more real and like you're you're immersed you're literally immersed with your brain visually anyway in in the VR experience and so there's there's something even more sinister to to the pushing for likes and things like that because Mm -hmm. It, it actually represents your value and your worth. So to clarify, this podcast episode, and Sarah Zilstra is kind of running the recorded podcast and their narrative storytelling, but this podcast came out of her work editing a recent book published by TGC called Social Sanity in an Insta World. So that's kind of where this came from. And going back to that, Molly, um, I've said before, I've kind of, this is becoming my mantra, but I think transhumanism is like the next major worldview and it's going to be specific that we're going to have to uh, battle and deal with the churches people are going to have to battle and deal with because our kids are growing up as digital natives Mm -hmm. they've had devices in their hands forever the cell phone came into existence in my lifetime I remember my dad had a bag phone in his car, you know, right. and and it was it was my, cool. Yep. It did not add to convenience and ease in life no. in so many ways because they were so it was, uh, inconvenient and expensive and, I remember at and unreliable. Age, age twenty five. 26, I had the, my first cell phone and Nokia hanging off my belt. Yeah, I got I'd my entered, first I'd entered the professional world. I got my first cell phone in college. I entered the professional world and got my first cell phone. I had a pager in college for Moody Broadcasting stuff. But, um, you know, it was like this transhumanism is is the movement i think that's going to be and let's define again what transhumanism is okay we defined it last week i realized that but right. it's this very esoteric out there term that i not think really yeah i mean i don't think it's not a word that i hear people use in everyday conversation Trans, transhumanism is the is a philosophical and this is from wikipedia philosophical and intellectual movement which advocates the enhancement of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies that can greatly enhance longevity and cognition. Now, <clears throat> think about this in context of transgenderism. Trans, you know, you're using this is your world, obviously, mm-hmm. but technology is now enhancing or using it to enhance or make somebody's life better through the use of this by saying, "Oh, well, I'm actually uh, I feel more like a female, so I'm going to go there," and, and- it's both an it's both a cognitive and an intellectual exercise and a way to it, elevate you, cognitive and intellectual <clears throat> are basically the same right it's it's a um, an emotive worldview value system as well as an intellectual thought right. process and technology is here helping us attain better versions of ourselves or transcend are human limitations. And, you know, a lot of my thinking from this comes from, uh, I think a five hour podcast with Tim from on Tim Ferriss's show that I listened to on a road trip (laughs) and, you know, the blockchain space, the, uh, the biological, uh, the biotechnology space, the medical space, these are driven by people specifically like the computer sciences and blockchain sphere, uh, these are driven by people with dual degrees in, in either math or computer science and philosophy. Mm-hmm. Like a driving motive behind what they're trying to do is to elevate the human race by using the, the, the ad, you know, the benefits it of It kind of sounds like the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, it just sounds like, but if or, you, this, or you shall be like God. So, yeah. So, but I mean, like there's, there's two things I, I keep thinking of one, if you don't have, and you'll see where I'm going with this. If you don't have anything like we're Christians, we've got a whole, uh, a whole worldview and that, that this in philosophy, that in theology where Technology fits under that, mm-hmm. but there's a whole world that doesn't have this overarching framework. This is their theology. Their, this is their the, worldview and philosophy. I mean, it's kind of trite to trot this out, but it's the the Jurassic Park guy uh, when he says, "You were so busy ta- thinking about what you could do, you didn't stop <laughs> to think if you should." Yeah. Only, only I would argue that with the idea of transhumanism. People believe that there is a moral imperative to use technology to enhance human strength, cognition, overcoming the limits of nature, however the person applying the technology deems necessary. And but that morality comes from a determination of right and wrong as based on whatever your worldview is. Right, but what I'm saying is is I wish I were better versed in my philosophers because <laughs> Carl Truman yeah, in this same. conversation could probably completely nail which of the philosophers <laughs> in his books that I'm talking about. I've got Stott's but, philosophy book upstairs. It's like, uh... but, but the, the idea that, that might makes right. And this is, this is Darwin in a lot of ways, right? Survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. This is the ideology that Nazism was built on that we have a superior race and it, it denigrates the image of God and the value and inherent dignity in all people because you were made in the image of God. That grants you inherent dignity and value. It also is, is this, I mean, really what fueled the Nazi philosophy, right? This trying to create a Superman race. And, you know, we see this in, in China right now. They are enhancing they're soldiers trying to do it technologically and by you know with biology and things like that but but i think that for them the question of right or wrong is completely built into them you know if i think that i should do it that makes it right right and so the total subjectivity of ethics and it's because of the lie of the serpent that oh, you should be like God. Genesis. So yeah, so Adam and Eve are are faced with a question of living within the boundaries that a loving God has created for them for their good, or trying to be God themselves because they resent their own humanity. Yeah, and human nature now with the acceleration of technology is seeing the the capability as a moral mandate to transcend the boundaries of being human. And I, yeah, what were you going to say? I was going to say the solution that I jokingly teased, I was teasing on Telegram Uh today. The solution to all this is goes back to, and it also ties into, you know, the discussion on how, how people's minds are changed. And it ties into an overall theme that, that, 
we have had for a really Constantly. long time. <laughs> like I said, spoiler alert. But it's the answer Molly, Molly week, always has. <laughs> last week we were talking about the solution to the problem of of craving and the pro, like poor poor food choices, poor you know poor things that you want. What are those cravings? You have to substitute. You can't just and I you touched on this with uh, Greta Est- yeah, Estridge. Yeah. Estridge was making it like. You don't just tell your kids to get off their devices. Well, yeah, so that's what I was actually going to say next. But you, you you, were saying you substitute the poor food choice. You substitute the mindless eating of a bag of potato mm-hmm. chips for something that's actually substantial and memorable and satisfying to your heart and your brain and your body. With technology and with transhumanism in particular, there's you know you've got to you've got to recognize that you're a created being, created finite creature in the order that God intended you to be there. And so natural so, law. So what Jr. was starting to say, right? With with Greta Eskridge. I was going to get to the second point. Go ahead. Oh, it, with she had this. I I posted this on our Instagram not long ago, but she was talking about kids and screens it actually started because her her oldest is 18 and he just got his driver's license and there were people who were like what your son's 18 and he hasn't wanted to drive yet and she's like look we live in southern california where there's not a ton of there's really crazy traffic he loves to be home with a family and i didn't get my driver's license till i was 18 like my family couldn't afford a car for me so there was no point to me really having a driver's license so no i didn't and i didn't want to push him i wanted him to do it when he felt comfortable and then she got this flood of responses from other moms saying the teens in my world are so happy to sit in the basement on their screens. They have no desire not only to get a driver's license, to get a job, to go out and do things. And she was like, oh, that's different than what my son did. <laughs> my son isn't sitting in the basement. First of all, we don't have a basement, but my son isn't sitting in the basement on his screen. He's engaged with a family. He's going places with me and my husband. Or with friends, he just didn't have, he didn't feel comfortable behind a car. So we didn't push it. We let him develop that comfort. But, and then she dove into, it does seem to be a real cultural problem where, and again, she didn't dive into this, but if we're talking about digital natives and what's more real and thus what's more valuable, is it the, you know, think about when we were teenagers, getting your driver's license was a huge rite of passage and super exciting and you know, couldn't wait to do it. And now she's like, there. This there's a huge swath of teenagers in America who have absolutely zero desire to drive because that doesn't add any value to their lives. There's no, there's no milestones. And so her exhortation was, this isn't a lost cause. Let's get our kids off this, off the screens. But it's not just give your kid a gab phone and nag them and do all this stuff. She said, you have to, first of all, lead by example. But second of all, you have to give them something better. If you're going to give them, if you're going to tell them to get off the screen, you have to give them a satisfying real world experience or thing that's worth turning the screen off for. And I mean, I'll tell you, I experienced that this last week. I left my phone in the van for most of the day while we were camping to the point where I had friends be like, hey, haven't heard back from you. And it's like, yeah, because I sat on the side of a well, sort of a lake, sort of a cove. It was a cove, cove in a very slow river watching my kids play in the water and reading a book for hours at a time. And I didn't miss my phone even remotely <laughs> because being present with my kids 
and not worrying about my phone getting sand in it or getting overheated in the sun and just sitting there and actually making progress through a good book and being in the moment. And I, I don't even know if I took 10 pictures last week. I, which is kind of actually a bummer in retrospect. I probably should have documented the kids playing in the water and stuff. Man, I hardly use my phone at all. Um, but but the, anyway, the core the core is a very scriptural, very biblical core. And even Shatsker talked talked about this in his book with eating. You replace those bad foods, change your taste buds, change what change what you change your desires and that that heart desire level and unfortunately i'm sorry i don't have a single verse to throw out there and solve all your problems but there's a theology of all the way through scripture of god changing us at the heart level at the desire level at at the level of you know the fruits of the spirit and you know we try to i mean i try to remind the kids of that as often as i remember like asking god to foster in us a desire for the things of the kingdom, a desire for the things of his, a desire to really, and I think some of you will recognize this because sometimes it just feels really good. Like you just really want to delight in sin. It just feels good. You want, but you're like, no, I want, I want it to feel good and to delight in the things of God and the I think- way he ordered the world, the things he's given, the gifts he's given me, the, and, and the, the love for others that we need to have. And I think the Schatzker book, The End of Craving, has kind of given us a gift in communicating that to the kids because they all understand loving chips and wanting to eat an entire bag of chips. (laughs) And to be able to say, you know, getting to do whatever I want to do and satisfying the desires of the sinful flesh is like eating an entire bag of chips. It tastes good in the moment. It does nothing for me nutritionally. It actually harms my body most, you know, other than occasional indulgences of chips that are Mm -hmm. appropriate. But by and large, if chips are my diet, I'm harming my body and I'm not actually satisfied. I could eat an entire bag of chips and still feel gross and hungry. But what about good food? Describe a delicious meal that you know is healthy for you, that you you like to make, help mom make, or that you like to make at home. And our kids can all describe delicious, healthy meals that are filled with vegetables. I mean, the last time I made that carrot and goat cheese dish, so the cumin roasted carrots with goat cheese and mm-hmm. lemon, Lily literally ate mine off of my plate because <laughs> they were gone and she wanted more. And so to be able to point to things like that and say, you know, the psalmist, David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That actually is because delighting in the right things, delighting in carrots with goat cheese and lemon zest is deeply, deeply satisfying and good for you because the way God created the world those things come together and it's true in Mm -hmm. food and it's true in how we spend our free time and it's true in our relationships. And so, um, I think that we, yeah, I just think Shatsker, Shatsker gave us. You guys answered all of this, the way to change people's minds, the way to overcome this technological worldview is to just have a lot of really good food with really good people around your table. Well, I mean, we we say that a lot, but I, I really do think it's tremendously profound. And coming off of the Greta Eskridge piece uh, or her highlight there that I probably can't even link on Instagram because it disappeared into oblivion. 
I I do think that it's deeply important as we get into this world, JR kind of threw out natural law, and natural law really is the opposite of transhumanism. Natural law, as defined by Carl Truman in Canavox, is looking at the way the world works and drawing moral implications from that. That is the opposite of transhumanism, which says this may be the way the world works, but if I can use technology to overcome it, might makes right. I have, I am, I can do whatever I can with whatever I want to, as long as it's technologically possible. Yeah. So that's the transhumanism worldview where natural law says, you know, for example, the example that I've been using with people lately to explain to little kids what is natural law is if you look at a picture of a cat and you look at a picture of a horse you say, which one of those is designed for climbing trees and catching catching mice? Well, it's the cat. Okay, tell me what about its anatomy that you can observe that makes you make that observation? Well, it's got sharp claws, it's got sharp teeth, it's little, it can sneak. And you, you So do you think that it would be morally acceptable to expect a horse to be able to clear the barn of mice and to beat the horse because it can't clear the barn of mice? No, it can't sneak up on them. It can't catch them. Its feet are too big to, you know, catch a mouse. It doesn't have claws to catch it. That sort of thing. Okay, now look at look at the cat and the horse. Which one of those is designed is appropriate for humans to ride? Not appropriate. Which one of these could a human ride on? So that's just a pure observation. Well, obviously the horse. Okay, so what happens if you sit on the cat? Well, you'd squash it. So this is a pure observation of the natural world. And now we're going to turn it into the moral realm, which is, should you try to ride a cat like you could ride a horse? Well, no, you shouldn't. That is a question of right and wrong. It would be morally wrong to sit on a cat. (laughs) I mean, this is momming 101, right? Tell the four-year-old multiple times a day, don't sit on the cat. Don't carry the cat that way. You know, but it's it's because you can observe from nature that it is morally wrong to sit on a cat. Well, transhumanism, trans transfelinism <laughs> would say, let's create a super cat that would carry small children in a battle or whatever. That's great. Whatever That's a great illustration. Create a super cat. <laughs> Create a super cat that we can ride. Well, With why do we need to ride it? And because what? we can. Because we can. Yeah. But it makes me feel good. without pausing to think whether we should or whether it would have unintended consequences right. to try to create a super cat. Oh, <laughs> but but uh. you know, so that's so that's funny, but move it into the realm of of the human body and questions of should and should not based on what the human body yeah. is designed for get a lot more um, fraught with what people think and what people think is insulting. So I was using this example with a couple, with a family that we had dinner with a while, a couple weeks ago. And the teenage daughter had, who actually I was telling the dad what I do with Cana Vox and the teenage daughter came in and she had bro- torn a fingernail back far enough that it was bleeding. And she, so as I'm then explaining what natural law is, I said, which of your parents did you come to when you hurt your finger? And she was like, well, mom. And she was, duh. And I was like, why didn't you go to your dad? And she said, because he wouldn't have been, like, he wouldn't have even known what to do to help me. And I was like, so this is not a hard and fast rule, because now that you do ski patrol, 
sometimes the kids would be like, um, I don't, they'll come to me for the comfort immediately. Their gut instinct is to come to me and they'll be like, I don't know. I'm not sure you know what you're doing because dad is trained as a ski patroller. So maybe I should get his band-aids and not yours. And I'm like, look, this essential oil is exactly what you need. Put it on and stop, stop. But, but the gut, and and so I told the girl, you actually, your instinct to come to your mom as the nurturing helper is there because you've had that bond with your mom since before you were born. Your mom has actually been protecting and nurturing you physically and emotionally since you were in her womb. And that is a bond that you have with her that should not be violated um, by anything external or by you or by her. It would be a violation of nature for her to stop nurturing you in the way that a mother is designed to do. So, so segue us into your rant. Well, I've been promising this all show now. <laughs> so, you guys, what I what guys, I we're packing in two weeks worth of episodes. Right, here. This is great. Yeah, and I have to go upstairs and ah, you're fine. I okay. So for dinner tonight, in addition to the meatloaf that is on the Traeger right now, and hopefully not overcooking or burning. We're doing meatloaf tonight. Yes, because we're doing burria tacos. Burria tacos. Oh, that's right. We're night. having friends over. And I really want to try burria tacos. John and tacos. Nicole to have good food. Hi, guys. For our hi, anniversary. Hi, um, <laughs> we scheduled this before realizing it was our anniversary. Because <laughs> we're You're like, oh, no. And I'm like, no, no. It's, 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 it's fine. We're not. We'll we don't celebrate. We'll put some candles in a giant zucchini. It's more zucchini fun to celebrate with friends anyway. So. Um, side note. I'm going to roast green beans in... Garlic, garlic salt, and lemon zest, and sprinkle some parmesan mm. on them to go with our. So I need to get upstairs in like ten minutes to do that. Wow! But take all the time you want to. Roll. I well, I was sitting lakeside in Idaho, right on the Washington border, for the last week. I was reading a book we've mentioned a little bit before. Kelly Capick is a professor at Covenant College, and he just published a book called "You're Only Human: How Your Limits Reflect God's Design." And why that's good news. This this was the segue from, this was where we were transhumanism to here. Accepting yes. your limitations, accepting your created being. So he but. actually makes this incredible statement talking about Adam and Eve in the garden. Because as he, he the premise of his book is... Is Kelly a guy? Kelly is a man. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what his wife's name is. He mentions her and her multiple times. She's had some chronic illness or something. So his first book was on suffering and it was Mm. born out of his own. He's a professor of theology. It was born out of his own meditations through deep suffering of his own family. Um, So he he basically is premising the book on the fact that we we would be better off spiritually, emotionally, relationally by reflecting more on what it means to be a finite creature. So God created us. We were finite by virtue of being created, but God also created us with specific limits that he designed for our good. And we tend to think of, of our limits in this we're not even thinking we're just absorbing the world we're living in which is that our limits are the product of in the christianese our fallenness rather than having been created as a as a bu- as a feature not a bug 
our limits, <laughs> our, our our ability to not get everything done in a day that we want to do, our ability to not mentally multitask all the things that we need to do, our ability to not maintain all of the relationships that we would like to maintain, our ability to not uh, get back into an exercising track and then suffer from an injury. All of these things we tend to internalize as a result of the fall rather than and and sometimes our own fault our own sin and sometimes the result of just existing in a fallen world and he said we actually in order to thrive need to start thinking of ourselves more as being created beings who were who have built-in limits designed by our creator and and when we do that, that's when we're able to evaluate ourselves more appropriately and in some ways stop living under a burden of guilt or of the idea that God is not satisfied with us that we tend to be living under. And I I didn't, it's a dense enough book that even though I read it for almost a week straight, I only made it to like page 70. But <laughs> going back to, to the Adam and Eve thing, he says, the serpent encourages us here is to imagine that they can and should know more. They should be more. He implies that divinely given limits are, are a fault to be overcome rather than a beneficial gift to be honored. And uh, he says that one Old Testament scholar calls it the ma- this idea that we should be able to master all things. And so the man and woman disdained their creaturely limits as faults instead of gifts, barriers that kept them from obtaining divine qualities. Taking a bite of their fruit was only the outward sign of the terrible lie that the servant got them to believe. Though they were the pinnacle of God's creation in the Genesis narrative, they became dissatisfied, rejecting love to gain power. That was an incredibly powerful statement, that Adam and Eve rejected love in order to gain power. And I think that that's for sure Hmm. a threat that transhumanism... And and not just trans... The the ethos of the world that we live in today uh, values power over genuine love by which I mean in a human level knowing other people and being known by other people deeply in a way that you your faults are known and you're loved in spite of your faults and so that was a really powerful part of the book for me that segues from the transhumanism conversation but one of the other really powerful parts for me that has impacted how I've been thinking about Christian community and parenting in particular is he he talks about the typical we're reformed in our reformed world a typical gospel presentation is something like this God is holy and loving you're a sinner God hates sin and can't be in his presence therefore Jesus died for you the cross is good news because now the father no longer sees you but sees Christ in the cross when he thinks of you he sees Christ and him dying for you instead and he says sounds good to me it yeah <laughs> the that is a presentation of the gospel that I would probably have I put, think I've made that presentation to my kids half a dozen right so so what later. he says is some traditions like my own place so much emphasis on our identity as sinners 
that we need leave no room for our deeper identity as the ones whom God designed in his own image to experience life and fellowship or to experience his original delight in us ourselves with our particular spunk, our personality, and our differences. And just a little segue, you guys, JR's mom is doing the Colson Fellows program right now, and I know Anna did it last year, and it's a ton of work and seems great. But one of the things that she has commented to me is that is that they're spending all this time in Genesis. Because if you if you have if you want to understand creation and you want to understand consummation, or not creation, redemption, and you want to understand consummation, you have to start with creation. You have to understand the original purpose and the original design in order to understand how how that was twisted. In order it's to understand Genesis, how it's yo. Yeah, it's first in Genesis. <laughs> right. So, so I mean, here he is saying, here he is saying, let's understand <clears throat> the original design as our deepest identity. And the original design is, remember, before the foundation of the world, God predestined you for good works, right? That means that before the foundation of the world, before the fall, God already had you with all of your quirks and all of your foibles designed, and he delighted in that design of you. And he, as he's redeeming you, continues to delight in the original design. So he's not sanctifying your, you know, can, can you be a sanctified, disagreeable giver? <laughs> <laughs> I would argue that at some level, yes, you probably can, because, because the deep original design... Well, I am uh, sanctified. G- increasingly being sanctified. Disagreeable giver. <laughs> but, okay, Everybody so... Hates so Capet goes on to say, since a presentation like the previous one often works solely in terms of obligations and our failure to meet them, we absorb the idea that God thinks and acts only in terms of obligations too. Thus, we can misperceive God's love as we misperceive that of our parents as consisting largely of self-imposed obligations. Things like joy or delight or approval are just too good to be true. God, like our parents, has to love us, or so we've been told. That's just part of the deal. He is God, after all, and there's no way we could ever meet his standards. We're repeatedly told so. Why should we ever think that God likes us? Nothing in the sermon outlined above indicates that there is anything especially likable about us. Far from it. We are told that there's nothing good in us, aren't we? Maybe the best we can hope for is that God will put up with us if we keep our heads down and hang around with Jesus. We imagine God's acceptance of us, like we're attending a party with our older brother Jesus. Our presence is tolerable to the host because we tanged along with someone he actually likes. In truth, that's how many of us experience, quote-unquote, God's love, mere divine toleration toward us. So, um... Do you feel like there's a... Would you say... If we really understand, like, I, I guess I shouldn't say that like that. I feel like we miss all over the place. Often we miss a delight in the original, in the original design. We miss the delight that God intended to have with us at the very beginning. You know, and instead it's like, well, God doesn't delight in me. I'm a sinner. It's only because of I Jesus do. and I am a tag along to his party. Yes. I think, you I know? think that the reform tradition with our emphasis on total depravity, right? That's the T and yeah. tulip and unmerited, you know, it's unmerited grace, you know? So there's this emphasis, which I think is absolutely true. There is nothing you can do 
to earn God's favor as a sinner. You can't do good works to atone for your sin or to earn God's favor. What you can do is you can delight in the relationship you have with your heavenly father for whom, and this is another way, if you want to do the tulip talk, the L, limited atonement that rubs people so so much the wrong way, can also be described as particular atonement, which means that Jesus died specifically for you. Because Jesus so delighted, or God, God the Father and Jesus working in concert, so delighted in the creation that he made you to be, he predestined you for good works, and he predestined you to be redeemed, to do those good works in the unique way that God designed you to do. And so you're not just some, like, you know, I'm trying to come up with a good analogy, and all I'm picturing is there's that that fairy tale of the, the mother with all the little kids under her skirt, or like a a goose or something with all the bait, the mm-hmm. chicks under its wings. It's not like we're ducking in under Jesus wings and God doesn't actually recognize precisely. Oh, you're here with Jesus, whatever you're good to go. It's I sent my son to die for you and I delight in having you at but, my table. Wait, am I going to make some theologian really, really cranky? So instead of when, when Christ, so that sin barrier that Christ wiped out, God no longer sees sees us through Christ, which is true, but instead Christ has removed the barrier that prevents our Heavenly Father and us from having a direct relationship. Who? I don't know. That's, is that above my pay grade? Because I'm not getting paid anything for this. <laughs> I don't know. I'd have, I'd have to think about that because certainly uh, Hebrews yeah, describes wanna... Christ as our mediator, but 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 when we but we when, have a direct relationship with our heavenly father though yes when we are when we are in glory we will see him face to face who is him jesus the father um I mean, he sees us. He has a relationship with us now. Yes, that we he didn't before. We well, I might just simply be oversimplifying. No, I mean, we still pray in Jesus' name. Well, right, but what I was saying is like you know this whole concept of like oh well, God sees God doesn't actually see me. He sees me through somebody else. Yeah. Well, no, that's not true. He actually does legitimately see us, and yes. sin was the barrier preventing us from having that relationship that we couldn't do ourselves. Yeah. I, I think that's fair to say. I'm, I'm, yeah. And like I said, I'm probably oversimplifying, making somebody's eyes, eyes roll over there. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think <laughs> I as I'm about I'm to go not. upstairs and cook beans, I think <laughs> where where I was telling some people specifically in private conversation, this this theology of of not not just being saved sinners, but of being creatures created beings in whom God delights in mm. that createdness and the creatureliness that that translates into a theology that I think we as Christians have to increasingly hold out to a world that is increasingly disconnected from their humanity from their flesh yep. and from their finite being body soul mind spirit however you want to parse out what a human is it's all we're all one thing it's all you can't split the body and the soul despite what hebrew says yeah, that, that <laughs> i'm not oh boy 
I'm going to be getting texts big, about this. Don't pick up that. You can't, you can't split, you can't separate the body and the soul and have you still be you. You are a body. You are your body. Your body is you in your, in your whole being. That's right. why the resurrected, that's why we don't stay disembodied spirits in heaven. We are resurrected bodies, perfected body, whole beings like the resurrected Jesus was. Okay. We'll go, we'll stay with that. <laughs> I think that Christians need to celebrate everything about the created order as good gifts of God. And we need to do it with joy and we need to do it with other people. And that is not only the antidote to transhumanism, that is, that's, as Robert Farrar Capon says, that's what I... Yes! <laughs> you did it! You brought in the supper of the Lamb! I have to! Yes! He says that our celebration <laughs> of the good gifts that God has given us now is essentially what ushers our souls into celebrating in glory with Him. That's the... That's... We can take it with us. That's what Capon says, is we can take the butter and the cheese and the crusty bread that are deeply satisfying to us. We can take those into glory with us because they're giving us delightful tastes of what it means to be a creature whom God has given really good things to, and he delights and delights to have us delight in them and be satisfied in them. And in glory, he will delight to sit. God and man at table are sat down. He will delight to sit with us with those delightful, good, created gifts there. And our best practice now for glory is to invite other people and to find the the Rod Dreher communities, the Benedict Option communities, where we're not withdrawing from the world, but we're creating these havens where people experience the good stuff. Like, this is the good life. It's not the life online. And our kids are part of these dinner parties and these communities of grace where they're experiencing the whole orb good stuff. That's what saves us from transhumanism, and that's what tells people it's not just turning away from transhumanism. It's turning to the good stuff. You can't just turn away. Okay, this is my final point. <laughs> um, Robert Murray McChain is famous for two things. He's famous for his Bible reading plan. He's also famous for saying, no, maybe he's not the one who said this. Uh-oh. He's There's another saying that just popped into my mind, which is for every, for every... One look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. I think that was him, but also this phrase, the expulsive power of a new affection, is a phrase that we hear in Christian worlds that's be, that's used for turning away from your idols, right? So um, an example would be don't, you know, don't use pornography, have good sex with your wife instead. Here's the deal. That is a true statement, that you can't turn from sin without turning to something that's better. But in the world that I think Kelly Capick is speaking about and that the, I've I've lived in for my adult most of my adult life is we use the turning to the good thing as a tool to get away from the bad thing. So it's not that we're necessarily so going back to Shatsker, I'm I'm going to use the piece of chocolate melting on my tongue as a tool to stop eating five bags of chips at a time. I'm not going to use the thing of chocolate 
as a delightfully good thing in itself. And as the good old Christian song says, and the things of earth will fade away. What is it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look yep, full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The his thing voice. is best version ever. I'm not familiar with that version. The thing is, is we, we tend to work really hard to make the things of the world go strangely dim because we're trying really hard to focus on that chocolate so that we can get away from the bag of potato chips. But what we really need to do is focus on the delight and the new affection only expels mm. the power of the bad affection when the new affection is the good thing itself. It's not a tool to get rid of the bad thing. So if we're talking about sex, you you can't just say, and I've heard this before, you know, wives have sex with your husband so that they don't want to look at pornography. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're saying that me not having good enough sex with my husband is the reason he's using pornography? No. That is a sin issue that he needs to work on, and he needs to develop a taste for the good, there for the real right thing. There. And I am part of that, but I am not the reason for my husband's sin, and I am not the fix for my husband's sin. The fix is that he develops appropriate tastes for real relationship, and if he's a single man, that's not having good sex with a woman, that's having married sex if God gives him a wife to have sex with and if he's not that's developing an appropriate understanding of what sex is for and in the meanwhile an appropriate understanding of what real relationships look like and what honoring members of the same and the opposite gender look like as God created us to do so you have to develop a full-orbed delight in the good in order for the bad to be expelled but you can't use the good as a tool because that just becomes a different form of idolatry. Ooh, and I'm self-righteousness. And self-righteousness. Well, there's that too. Okay, guys, that was oh, that was good stuff. That's awesome. Um, I There's going to be a bunch of links in the show notes. I'm going to include the Adam Grant TEDx thing, the J.J. Abrams interview, Amber Johnston, uh, Scrolling Alone, the Scrolling Alone podcast on TGC, Tim Ferriss and Neil Ravikant uh, on that podcast, a link to the end of Craving, um, something from Greta Eskridge. I think Molly mentioned this all came out of a book, uh, Venturing uh, Together or something like that. No, no? it was okay. her Instagram. I'll include the Kelly Capick book as well as a link to the Supper of the Lamb. If you guys want to get a hold of us or interact with us in any way on the show, the best way to do it is to join our Telegram group. I've got um, a private group for Telegram for our listeners. Uh, the link is in the show notes. It's a private link. Go ahead and click that. Come on, come on by and visit. We've got the conversations are all over the place, um, led by the community, obviously. Um, and so that's pretty cool to have that there. And uh, if you do just want to send us a message, you can go to our website, www.tb2f, the number 2f.com, or toobusytoflush.com, all grammatically correct. And scroll all the way down, and there's a little postcard option. You can send us a postcard. You can also send us an email. TB, the number 2F, TB2F at pm.me, papamike.me. Send us an email there if you want. Um, that said, I think we're, we don't have any trips planned, so we're on track for weekly episodes from here until hunting season. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm not hunting nearly that much this year. Um, so yeah, if you have any, I, I got nothing left. That's it. We're going to go have dinner and go to judo. Um, anything else, Molly? Nope, that's it. Gotta right, go guys. cook some beans. Cool. See you guys next week. Bye.